Okay. Hello, everybody. Welcome, welcome. My name is Sue Ellisoller, and I am so honored to have Serena Myers on today to talk about her life and her work and her new book. Hello, hello. Hi, I'm really excited to be here too. When you were like, oh yeah, let's do this. I'm like, let's do this soon, like now, because yeah. like all of my work these days is surrounded around anger and um, the world kind of needs to have this conversation right now. So I'm really glad the timing lined up for us. Yes, definitely. And I love, 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 love the fact that you're bringing up anger, especially as a spiritual and sensitive entrepreneur who's like on the love and light side. Mm -hmm. Because I really think that this topic needs so much more eyeballs on it and so much more attention. Because it's not like we don't get angry. And it's not like life is like hunky dory all the time. Totally. I actually think um, in many ways, the spiritual community, and this is, you know, maybe a bit controversial, but I think that it has done a lot of harm to its people by trying to say that everything needs to be love and light all the time. Because then when a sp spiritual person gets angry because, hey, we're human, like we came here to have a human experience and sometimes things make us angry. Um, there is this spiral of shame. There is this feeling of I should, I should know better. I should rise above this. I'm not my higher self right now. And it's like, no, you're not your higher self. You're your human self. And that's okay. And um, it creates a whole lot of unnecessary conflict within ourselves that doesn't need to be there. And that's because we, this whole idea of like the high vibe tribe is actually not high vibe. It's, it's, it's lying, <laughs> frankly, and it does a lot of harm. Right. Oh, I totally agree with you. And I feel like it's almost like this victim mentality that, that keeps us because we don't have a right to our anger. And if we suck the anger out of ourselves, then anger is a huge motivator. Anger makes us shift and makes us change and makes us realize what's wrong and what's right. Well, and before we went live, we were talking about like how coronavirus has really helped us get sharp about what's important to us. Mm -hmm. And that's actually probably the biggest teaching that anger has. It gives you clarity and um, knowledge about yourself and what's important to you, what your values are, what your boundaries are, um, because it's reactive. Like there's, it doesn't, it's, you know, anger is not a polite emotion. So it doesn't have a way of playing nice when something, you know, is being triggered within it, it reacts. So, um, it is a really beautiful teacher for us to get to know ourselves better and what's even important to us. Right. Yeah, because anger feeds these things like frustration and resentment and these things, especially when you have, when you're an empath or when you're a healer, you are so open mm -hmm. to giving to other people. And a lot of times without boundaries in place or without proper boundaries in place, then then anger seeps into the energy exchange mm -hmm. and can taint that. I think it does it in two ways. One is when we're denying our own and we're burying it down and then resentment builds and everything else, um, particularly because we want to keep giving and there's nothing left in the cup for anyone else or ourselves. And I think the second part is because a lot of people who are in like any kind of healing work, they tend to be empaths, they're energetic sponges. And if they are not being like ultra, ultra diligent with their energy management, and I throw myself in this mix because I get my butt kicked by it regularly, um, then they're taking on other people's stuff, anger included. So then they are having all these emotions, they don't know where they're coming from. And you know, sometimes it's not even our work, like I'm super energetically entangled with my spouse. And there are times where like I'm reactive and I'm going, what is going on? Like, why am I so pissy today? Why is my fuse so short? And I'm like, oh, this has nothing to do with me at all. 
but because we're so enmeshed. And so I have to regularly do cord cutting, even though we're deeply in love, even though we are committed to each other. Energetically, we need to be autonomous. So the people closest to you, your children, your spouse, um, it's really easy to get entangled with them. And so we need to have really clear energy boundaries and we need to know what our own vibe is like so that um, when something is off, we can go, okay, wait a minute, this actually isn't mine. And then we right. can really need to kind of clear that. And do you feel like that's going to be a, a lot more prevalent because people are quarantining or because they're spending a lot more time in it closer to their family members than they probably have in a really long time. And so yeah. do you feel like that's um, kind of something that's going to bubble up to the surface because of the quarantines and everything? So I think our entanglement, like energy isn't bound by location, right? So I think that the entanglement happens whether it's your family across the country, across the world, or the people in your house. I think where that amplification comes from is that there's no outlet. So our homes become pressure cookers. So where um, you would have a break when the kids go to school and the kids have a break from you, now you're all together all the time. Um, in many ways, like there wasn't a lot of change for us because my spouse and I both work from home. <laughs> so we were already together all the time. It wasn't as bad for us in that way, but we were the exception to the rule for sure. And most people were having that, like where they weren't having, especially at the beginning of lockdown, where, you know, we didn't even know that it was safe to like go for a walk. We were really just in our homes um, and there isn't any space. And we need, we need, we're, you know, we're social creatures and we love connection. We crave it but we could also like use a breather now and again too. And I think that lack of breather is what's creating that pressure cooker that we're having in our homes. And I think it's also, what's causing frankly the second wave because now people are starting to rebel. They don't want to follow the rules right. anymore. They feel they've been doing it long enough um, and they're frustrated. So they want right. to go out and break the rules. They want to just like do something else and be wild and crazy with or without their masks. <laughs> and, um, and I think a lot of that comes from the fact that we've had this like pressure building for what nine months is it now 10 months I don't even know anymore it's been a while yeah, since I think our first shutdown happened in March but I think we were about three weeks ahead of the United States but you bring up an interesting topic too that is really really a good one to talk about which is that communal um, energy absorption mm -hmm. or you know kind of like sometimes you can't even go to Facebook. You're just like, I was in a great mood until I opened up Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And then it's just like, you get this assault and then you're angry. Like you said, even though you don't want to be angry, even mm -hmm. though, so. And I think there's two things. There's like, the, there's the collective energy of everybody sharing their stuff, but then it's also exposure to things that we wouldn't normally see. Right. Um, because, you know, we're getting hardships from around the world. The world is so much more connected than we used to be. Whereas before we would only know about the stuff happening in our own backyard. So, you know, some of it is like the energy of it. And some of it is just of knowing the facts of what's happening in the world. Um, the Black Lives Matter stuff that was happening earlier this year, like it was, re it really fired me up in a way that I was, it's, I'm like, I didn't say it, like it surprised me, but just because I didn't realize how important it was in terms of my values. And, you know, a huge part of that, I think was just, having awareness because what was going on in the US is different than what is in Canada. Not that we're like, we're definitely not perfect. We've got our issues, but it's not the same issues. And so seeing it so vividly, seeing it every day where new people were dying and 
these protests were happening, there was the collective energy of, whoa, that's a lot. And then there was like, are you kidding me? Is there seriously another black man dead by a cop today? Right. And that's hard, like, especially when you're sensitive. How do you just like shrug that off? You can't. Right. Well, and it turns anger into a justifiable source or fuel for change. And, Absolutely. you know, in Canada, in the United States, in Europe, where I live, it, you know, they're, they just had uh, where the French police uh, had beat this record producer. And, you know, it, it was just the same thing that's happening in the United States. But I think that what you're talking about, too, is that we are finding out a lot more about what's going on and people mm -hmm. aren't willing to sweep it under the rug anymore. And it's, mm -hmm. pardon my French, but it's pissing people off Absolutely. to the point where, and then I love that you are saying anger is okay. Yeah, so, because the thing that's like, I mean, you brought up the, um, you know, using it as like, like as an activist even, right? I mean, that is like anger is an activist's fuel. Where we get damaged by it is when we are armchair activists, where we get on Facebook and we're like, this is really bad, tweet, tweet, tweet. And we do nothing. So we're just doing a lot of this. We're not actually giving that any energy anywhere to go. We're not really learning from it. We're not actually going out and protesting and whatever. We're just angry. And then it kind of consumes us from the inside out. It's really, that's actually when it's really, really detrimental. But when we can use it to write letters to politicians, where we can use it when we go out and we vote, when we can use it um, when we're making our charitable donations or when we're, or when we're amplifying the voices of the people that, you know, need more exposure because they have a different viewpoint than ours. Um, that's when you start to use your anger as fuel. And that's when it can be ridiculously powerful and empowering. So it stops being something that we're avoiding and that's uncomfortable and that we're afraid of. And it starts becoming the thing that helps us feel like we're making a difference. That's a really, really good point, you know, and, and to actually use it instead of, instead of just becoming a part of the problem, being the armchair activist and everything, really going out into the real world and allowing our anger to fuel letters and to fuel us protecting the environment, perhaps, or to fuel the, the purchases that we're making even. 100%. Yeah, I, I think the other part is like as empaths, um, we sometimes find it hard to have those conversations. Like a protest would be something really hard for an empath because not just the anger, but the intensity of all those people and all of that emotion. And I think um, a lot of times we undervalue the behind the scenes work. So like when you're giving to charities, when you're sitting down with like your racist uncle and you're having to say, hey, that's actually a really terrible viewpoint. That's activism. And that's actually right. more vulnerable than to go out with a picket sign. So we really undervalue the ways that empaths can show up in a way that still feels safe for them. Um, but they're absolutely moving things forward. They just have to not shut down and cocoon in, right? It's shining your light and using it for good. Um, but it doesn't have to be in the way that you see, you know, thousands of people doing it on Facebook. It can be in your own way where it is, you know, conversations with one or two or five people at a time instead of, thousands it's still moving right forward right or or putting your energy into different things you know for example there are um animals for example i have a friend who works with animals um she's in bulgaria i think 
And so there's a lot of street animals. So mm -hmm. she focuses her sadness and feelings about these street animals that have been, you know, just dumped and neglected or whatever. And she's an animal, um, animal communicator and empath mm -hmm. and things like that. So it's just really finding an outlet then for your particular form of activism. Yeah, and finding a way that feels comfortable for you rather than what everyone else is doing. Because it's yeah, easy it to tell ourselves that we're not doing enough because it's not the mainstream when if we are doing something, that's important and it's valuable. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. What what brought you, did you get to a point in your own life where you were just like fighting and struggling with your own internal feelings and this? That's my entire life. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> By the time I got to corporate, I think I was like, it was near the end of my corporate career. So I was like 28, 27, something like that. Um, the CEO of our company, uh, his nickname, he started calling me LBR. Didn't tell me why. He was just like, hey, LBR. And I was like, that's really weird. And then one day I said, what is this LBR thing? And he said, oh, it's a little ball of rage. And like, that is, that is what the owner of my company used to call me. And it didn't occur to me that like, that's a red flag. <laughs> Why are they putting up with me being a little ball of rage? Why am I putting up with being a little ball of rage? I didn't even think I had an anger problem to tell you the truth. Uh, I knew I was angry, but I grew up around anger. I grew up around violence. I grew up in like in, in people that were really around people that were really impoverished. And so there is an underlying contempt. There is that scrappiness that comes from not having your needs met. And I kind of just thought it was normal. To be, to be totally honest. And when I started my spiritual journey, I kind of accidentally started my spiritual journey, actually. Um, I went into it, I, I went into it with this um, idea that I was going to use a tool. Uh, I was working with ayahuasca, which is a shamanic um, tea that takes you on an inner journey. And I thought of it as like a tool that was going to help me connect to my subconscious. Like I really saw it as like a psychological device, not a spiritual one. And my entire world cracked open. There was like the life before that and the life after that, and there was no going back. And that's when I started to see how anger was playing out for me, how it was a mask for other things because I wasn't really willing to get uncomfortable with more vulnerable emotions. It was easier to be angry than it was to be sad or disappointed. Um, and they, we do a, we did a lot of work in the serpent realm, which is like the lower realms. It's the realm of the ego. So like our shadow side. And I mean, that, those conversations were really about the abolition of, of the ego. Like it was all about getting rid of it. And I remember having this moment of like, but like I learned so much in this space. It's not fun work, but I learn a lot in the, in, in the realm of the, of the serpent. And that's when I started realizing that this wasn't maybe the teacher for me anymore because I was having the shift that was happening. That was more about like, I wouldn't say, you know, being friends with my ego, but at least including it in the conversation. And that's a really, really interesting switch of um, perspective also, because it, it, there's this feeling like the ego should be shunned, that the ego is false and wrong and everything like that. But once you start exploring a little bit deeper, you realize that your ego is actually something that's there um, to help you out. And it's like your wounded little kid, um, basically. and but it's also a wise part of you that it's, it's part that has it's tied to survival. That's its number one goal is to keep us safe. So mm -hmm. when we want to do something that's really expressive, where we're going out on a limb and we want to do something different in the world, the ego goes 
<laughs> because on a <laughs> level, everything is about stay with the pack. You're safe with the pack. You have to blend in. You have to conform. It's not because it wants to like stifle our self-expression. It's trying to keep us safe. And so when we start to recognize the agenda of the ego and that it's not just like some jerk who's trying to like hijack our life, we start to go, okay, hold on a minute. You're not in charge, but let's have a conversation. Like, why is it that you think and feel the way that you do? And that, I mean, that's essentially what I'm doing with anger now. And anger and the ego are really intertwined. Some people would say that they're the same. Um, but I feel like it's, it, anger is an, an expression of the shadow self. And when we have those conversations, not letting it be in the driver's seat, it can, it's not even in the, it's not even in the passenger seat. It's like in the back seat. It can be part of the conversation, but it's not choosing. There's an expression. Someone had a story where they're not choosing the playlist. So it's not, you know, mm -hmm. setting the tone in the car and they're not in the driver's seat. So I think when we can have that relationship with it, where it's like in the back seat, maybe it's even like a station wagon where it's like really far in the back. <laughs> like, I hear you. Thank you for your input. But this is what we're going to do. And again, we get to still have that clarity, but we're in control of it. It's not consuming us. It's not driving us. Right. And how do you feel like, okay, there are so many people who are, even in today's day and age, growing up around violence. They're growing up around lack. They're growing up in these, you know, um, for example, in, in the Chicagoland area, they had like Cabrini Green, which was like the projects across the street from the Frank Lloyd Wright homes, where it was just this really, you know, kind of uh, horrible... Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. like, and, and like you said, there's this anger and resentment that is, you know, and then you just feel when you grow up with it, you just, like you said, you just think it's normal. Normal. Mm -hmm. So, how do you kind of get past that, you know, because anger is also a primal feeling urge it's really raw and it's really you know kind of sometimes i mean it takes over your your hormonal system it takes over your breathing and your you know your heartbeat your everything it's it's so ingrained so how can you like get to the point i recognize you anger i gotta sit here and you know kind can of be with it yeah, I guess I did yeah. some steps in the middle there because um, <laughs> I didn't wake up one day and like just start to like kumbaya with anger. That's not how it happened at all. Right. Um, so people, young people today have the advantage of the Internet. They are already seeing more of what's out there. And there's a lot of stories that we're hearing now of people who have like risen above whatever their circumstances were. So they get to have examples of what's possible and which they can either use to fuel the resentment or to create some faith, some hope, some excitement of what's possible for them. So I think as much as, um, you know, we're inundated with a lot of stuff, that's a really big advantage for young people. Um, the other thing is to just, and I think we could all do this regardless of our circumstances. I feel like when we can branch out of our immediate bubble of people who live and uh, breathe the way that we do, and we just get exposure to stories of other people's experiences, again, we get to start to have um, just a deeper understanding of the human condition of what's possible. And when I say what's possible, not just for us to aspire to, but for us to also have compassion for. Um, for me, when I was in high school, I had a girlfriend who was very, very wealthy 
And her parents just love me. So they took me along to fancy dinners. I learned how to use like which forks to go for what. And we went to the theater and all these different things. So I had exposure to what was possible. And it, it was what told me, wait a minute, it's not always like this. But before I had seen that, everyone I knew, everyone I'd grown up with, we were all in the same boat, my family and 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 classmates. So there was no knowledge of another world. And I think that we kind of do that. We sort of like surround ourselves in this echo chamber of people who are exactly like us. And then that becomes reality. And then we kind of double down on that reality. So whenever we do meet someone who disagrees with us, we're so like determined that this is truth and you're wrong, that it creates a lot of friction that doesn't necessarily need to be there. When I was in, um, I went to radio school and we did a documentary on homelessness. And so I sat down with people who were even worse off than what I grew up with and bogged down with addiction. They're literally sleeping in the rain. And having those conversations was so eye-opening to go like, oh, I thought I had it bad. And not from like that pity or comparison place, but for the reality check. And we kind of need that, you know, we always think about the people who have it, you know, less good wanting the reality check of what's possible for them. But it's also really good to kind of just know what people are experiencing, period. And I think that's one of the reasons why travel works really well for people to expand their horizons and to really open their minds because they're getting ideas of people who live differently than they do. And I think we could all use a little bit more of that. Um, once we start to have those shifts where, you know, what we know to be true isn't actually true, it's just one truth, um, then it becomes this, um, let me be clear, I still get very angry. <laughs> so... I'm not, I would never, ever encourage someone to become some kind of Zen master because like I said, we can learn a lot from that anger. In the moments, um, you need to almost be able to step outside of yourself. And I have a meditative practice, so that really helps. I've done lots of different types of shamanic journeying. That really helps. If you're able to have a moment where sometimes you just need that one beat before you react, in that beat, there is the opportunity for choice. Of, am I going to ask if this person is deliberately being offensive or am I just going to act like they're being defensive and tell them they're an a-hole? We just need that one beat. And what I was noticing a few weeks ago um, when I was really, really irritable, I didn't have the beat anymore. I was just like choo, 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 sharp tongue everywhere. And I went, oh, that's not me. Like I worked really hard to develop that beat. So what's going on here? And it was, you know, untangling it with my therapist. We got it figured out. It was fine. But we need that with that one beat is the thing that is really the game changer. And that beat is what says that anger's in the back seat and not in the driver's seat. That's when you get to hold on to the steering wheel, say, nah, man, you say what you got to say, but you do it from back there. And I think that right. um, it takes some self-control. Um, it takes the willingness to not immediately be offended or hurt or reactive. It's not an easy thing to master. But over time, and the more you practice it, the better you get at it. Like everything. Well, and I love you. You brought up so many different points that are great. You brought up the fact that, you know, being a Zen master is like, <laughs> it's probably not going to happen. It's a practice, too, mm -hmm. that you probably need support to help you unravel things. 100%. That, um, therapy, shamanic journeys, energy work, healing, and also self-reflection in the moment of, wow, my trigger is gone, or mm -hmm. my trigger is, you know, shorter than usual, or I don't mm -hmm. even know, I'm, I'm saying the wrong thing there. But um, so it's something that takes and requires 
work and effort and it's not going to be a shift from one day to the next. You're not going to have your ayahuasca journey and then all of a sudden you might be really, really changed on the other side of it. But it doesn't mean that there's this glow of perfection and, you know, because you're coming Um, back to your regular life after that. So even though you're changed, everything else is the same. And so then it becomes, how do I maintain this degree of openness, this degree of love, compassion, whatever it is that you got from that experience? How do I integrate that into my regular life? We see that. It doesn't even have to be shamanic journeys. We see that when people go to like inspirational events for like a weekend and then they come back, they're all high vibe and they're like, yeah, woo, that was great. Oh, now I'm an accountant and I'm just sitting here doing math. And what's the point of it all? Like, I mean, it's very important, but we sometimes lose perspective of of things like that. And it becomes something that we really need to, um, to sustain. And it also, sometimes that means that we have to make some shifts in our life about, I mean, sometimes it's the relationships we have or the work that we do, or it might even just be like the furniture in our home. Like I remember I came back from my first retreat and I was like, I don't like these big, tall bookshelves. I had these seven foot black bookshelves. And whenever I would meditate, it felt like they were looming over me. So I was like, why do I do this? Now all my bookshelves are white. (laughs) So little things like that, that we have in our awareness of this isn't working for me. What do I need to change? And then the courage to make those changes. Yes, it's easy to change your bookshelf. But I've seen people who are like, my marriage isn't working. Am I ready to end that? Um, Because, you know, while we're entitled to make these changes within ourselves and to feel what we do and want what we want, need what we need, so do the people around us. And so we can come to the table and say like, hey, I know we've been playing chess for the last five years, but I want to play checkers now. Well, they have the right to say, yeah, let's pull out the checkers. Or they say, peace out, I'm done. And we have to... And maybe it's not checkers. Maybe they're going to say, you know what? I don't want to play checkers. Let's play Monopoly. And you'll go, you know what? Actually, yeah, Monopoly works for me. So then that's like a compromise, right? But that is the part that I think a lot of people are afraid to dig into this work of because they're like, whoa, what if this blows everything up? And it might, but it doesn't mean that it has to be a bad thing either. Right. Well, I feel like anger has been kind of the go-to um emotion especially if you're going to talk about and and i hate to call it this but like the toxic masculinity Mm -hmm. um you know we're we're taught that anger somehow equals power in some ways you know like there's this warrior energy that's just you know archetypal in Mm -hmm. in humans that and but I feel like there's a huge shift away from that. Like as we evolve as people and a species and everything like that, we're trying to say, well, this anger thing might be a part of me, but like you said, we get to choose. Okay. Um, fear sitting down with the hubby and saying, okay, Ooh, yeah, this, this whole strategic layout of everything and going back and forth isn't working. So let's work out either something together or let's not, Mm -hmm. you know, and that brings up fear and also fear of the anger and resentment and, and, you know, everything that's going to come up as a result of having these deep and and meaningful conversations. I think especially if we're not used to having those conversations, if we've always played at the surface because that's what we knew, that's what was safe, that's what we learned. Um, 
it can be it can be a little disruptive when you start to you know do a little archaeological dig of your heart and you're like, oh, this is what I really feel. But I think there's also a really beautiful honoring that happens from that, regardless of the outcome. When you're someone who has never felt safe to express how they feel and you just keep bearing it down where you are um, putting everyone else's needs before your own and you're just making sure that everything is okay because that's easier than digging in your heels and saying, actually, no, this is what I want. It's easier or safer or whatever the reason is. When you suddenly shift and start using your voice, like it is a game changer because now you now you're actually I feel like those people, even though they've chosen the car they're in, they're they're riding in the passenger seat and it's always someone else, not necessarily anger, but it's always somebody else who's in the driver's seat. And when they start to speak up and when they start to claim their needs, their wants, their feelings, and they start to say how they um, everything that they've been holding on to, they're in the driver's seat now. So yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, it's going to feel super awkward if it's not what they're used to. But it's also empowering and really um, transformative for someone because now they get to recognize that there's this whole other life that they haven't been living, that they get to start now. And it's really beautiful. Oh, yeah, yeah definitely. And, and the anger that drove them to actually have the courage because anger can drive courage as well. And courage mm -hmm. is such a beautiful thing and, and standing up. And then you, when you voice what's in your heart, then you have understanding. It, it stimulates conversations and it, it starts a different energy flowing. I think that comes back to what you were saying before about self-reflection. And I think that, um, you know, having these conversations with anger or just being honest about how you feel, whether it's anger or grief or loneliness or whatever it is, when we are ha when we have the ability to self-reflect, we get to know ourselves better. We get to know what we're actually craving. We're getting to know what our needs are in ways that we probably weren't conditioned to have at the beginning. So you're talking about toxic masculinity before. And, you know, I have a part in my book that talks about like, we got to include men in the conversation. There's been this beautiful pendulum shift that's happened where um, there's all these different programs, all these events, everything is about the empowerment of women. And in doing that, it has been really disruptive to the patriarchy. And I'm not saying poor men, I'm not saying that at all, but they didn't have any say so. They have now had this drastic change on a really big level in a really fast way, faster than we've had most of our shifts um, evolutionarily. And they're, they don't have the same supports that we do in the sense where all these programs have been developed because so much has been about making women feel safe to speak up, to take back their power and to claim these things for themselves. And particularly the sensitive men who are lumped in with these powerful guys who are benefiting from the patriarchy um, and anger wasn't their go-to either. And they weren't striving for power and they were just like trying to get by in this world. And they were almost as much a victim of the patriarchy as the women were. And um, they're not being included in the conversation. They don't have the same resources put to them. And, you know, like I said, it's not about like, oh, poor men. It's really about like, what can we do to make this, tra this transition is happening. <laughs> what can right. we do to make it a little easier on you? Because we don't want to then like swing the pendulum so far that we're in toxic femininity. Like that wouldn't do us any good, right? We really need to have a balance where the two can come together because we're better together. But I think there's still some things that need to be disruptive before we get there. I think this year has been really about dismantling the systems that we had in place because this disruption was necessary. 
Oh, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I, I, you know, it was, I was just writing about that in medium the other day, but you know, um, really things weren't working for a really long time. And, and there was so much pressure on everybody to always be on. And even in, you know, in the patriarchy or whatever, there was this um, idea that the man had to be the provider. He had to be the one who provided the security, the money, the, you know, um, the stability in the home. And now that things are shifting or things have been shifting for a really long time. And so the, there's not that same assuredness, even in workplaces in, in, but, but women also needed the power. I mean, I was raised by a single mom and I was a single mom for like eight years. So I understand like usually when the, the, the man isn't around, there's a huge vacuum of financial, you know, and, and that's also really infuriating sometimes too. But, um, but yeah, I totally agree with you. And there has to be the stigma taken away from it as well, where men can open up and be softer and be more expressive and not have to kind of like have, you know, that, that patriarchal expression of what a man is supposed to be. Like why because, is anger one of the only emotions yeah. we allow men to have? Yeah. That's messed up. Yeah. Totally. And anything else. And, you know, they'd be like, oh my God, you're such a girl. Oh, let me get you, you know, a tampon. Like they really use women as like this um, insult. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because someone actually had emotion. And, and this is where we need to, as a collective, not just women, but we need as a collective to claim our feelings, all of them. And yeah, sometimes it's going to be anger and we need to be okay with that. And sometimes it's going to be like, I feel really lonely. I feel really lost. I feel like I have no direction. Um, and it needs to be safe for anyone to express that and to be able to get the help that they need. Right. We're, we're, we're heading there. We're not there, but we're heading there. Well, yeah, and it's step by step. It, it really, you know, we have so much, you know, when you look at where we're at as, you know, the human story is evolving and there, you know, it went from war. It went to from, you know, people who were kind of hoarding resources and land and this and that and the other things. So, so we're shifting things into, you know, in some ways, the outcome that we're all looking for is like this utopian society, or at least many of us are, are hoping for that outcome where everybody is like allowed to own and express all of the full range of their feelings, like you mm -hmm. were just saying, and that a man can be sad, or be lonely, or have his heart hurt or whatever. And, that and has no, he's no less of a man for those things. Right. It's totally yeah. Okay. yeah. And it, you know, it's so funny because I see my husband and the guys on our street, even though they're very much a part of the patriarchy, they need their little hen group almost more than the women do on mm. the street. Sorry, happy if you watch this. It's going to be like, don't talk to me. No, but uh, yeah, it's, there's this total shift needed in society. And 
I don't know if coronavirus is going to be a trigger for the shift or if it's something that kind of has uh, or did it push it back? What do you think? So I think one of the things is um, that it really showed us how much we need other people. And I think um, because mm -hmm. so many people were isolating on their own um, or were just with their immediate people, they started to recognize also, um, oh, sounds so harsh, but I think some of the superficiality that we were living with when we relied on going for cocktails as the only way that we could open up, when we started to see with all those systems that we were not systems, crutches that we were relying on for human connection were gone. Um, we got to see just how fake a lot of them were. So coronavirus um, and the pandemic and the, the lockdown is specifically of this wonderful journey we've been on this year. Um, I feel like it's kind of wiping the slate clean. And I know people keep talking about, oh, I can't wait until we go back to normal. Like, I don't think there's going back to normal. We are creating a new normal. And then it says, okay, great. So now that you've had this experience of loneliness, of disconnection, of doing things differently, of having um, your crutches taken away, what do you want to build? And the courageous ones are going to say, I want to show up with more depth, even if it means with fewer people. I want to have real connection. I want to um, not have to rely on substances to be able to tell my truth and all these different things. Um, it won't be everybody, but I also think about it and I say, well, yeah, but not everybody's journey when they came into this life was specifically to be a disruptor, was specifically to have these deep experiences. Sometimes they were there to help the people who were having the deep experiences just navigate things. They're just the foundational people. And that's no less a noble journey. So I think that the ones who are ready, um, this has been a reset. The ones who are not ready are going to keep trying to create as much of the old world as we had before. Right. Yep. That's, That's my theory anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see how it comes out because it's very similar to my theory as well. So it's just really, you know, hoping, fingers crossed, thumbs tucked, what to do here. And um, now if you could give a person one piece of advice or one little exercise that they could do when they start spiraling or or to even accept their anger mm -hmm. as a spiritual person, what would you say? I've actually created a PDF that has three exercises. So I'm gonna to try to think of something else. And it's called Conversations with Anger. It's literally just like, these are tools that you can use to get to what's going on beneath the system. I would actually love for someone who's in that place, maybe not immediately because when you're in anger, you're not really productive, but perhaps right after you've had an outburst. Um, where you take to your journal and you say, what does this anger mean about me? And then I would dig in deeper and say, how do I know this to be true? And a lot of the stuff that we have as evidence is actually our programming. It's not actually truth. It's assumption and it's conditioning. It's the things that we've heard growing up. It doesn't actually make it fact. And when we can see that in front of us, written out in our own handwriting in black and white, we're able to extract the experience from the story that we've created about the experience. And that starts to give us a little bit of objectivity because really like in my ideal world, everyone would be able to say like, yeah, I get angry. I don't hurt anybody in it in the process. I make amends. I forgive myself. Um, and that's okay. I'm human. 
if we could just accept our humanity, that'd be really great. But before we can get to the accepting part, we need to have that separation of the stories that we've told ourselves about the outburst and then what actually happened. Because in reality, like if you just, you know, marched upstairs and screamed into a pillow, there's no reason to shame yourself for that. You, you found an outlet, you released it in a way that was healthy. Like there's nothing wrong with that. And we need to stop making that something bad about ourselves. But you can see how spiritual people would start to spiral around like, oh, that was really low vibe. I can't believe I did that. Oh my gosh, the shame. And, you know, forget all of that. Let's just give ourselves permission to separate what actually happened and the story that we've told ourselves about it, because this is where the shame happens. The story is the shame. It's the judgment. It's the criticism. All of that happens when we start to make what happened mean something. The more we can take the feelings out of it, which sounds ironic because we're talking about a feeling, but the more we can take that out and just look at the facts, we can recognize that we're not monsters and that there's nothing wrong with us. Right. Well, and for me too, it's it's allowing that that place where you were saying like you you make amends, you apologize because you know, sometimes my kids have me up to here or my husband has me up to here or the combination thereof, plus the dogs and everything else. And then, you know, I just lose it. And then I think also there's a grace in teaching them that you're going to get angry every once in a while and you can come back and you can say, I'm really sorry. I know Mm -hmm. I hurt your feelings. And because it does happen sometimes. And despite how, how, much control we try and have over it and the more open you are with yourself about it I think the more it spurs change within you and especially if you're a parent because then you're having that ripple effect with your kids because they are emulating what they learn mm -hmm. it's huge yeah yeah my mom um my mom is very proud and she's she's a bit of a tough as nails like doesn't want help from anybody and whatever and when we would fight um, she doesn't really admit that she's wrong very much, like almost never. And I remember as like my, I'd say maybe like a preteen and an early teen, um, she would slip notes under my door. So she's not someone who could sit down at the side of my bed and be like, hey, I screwed up here. I'm sorry. But she could write it in a note and slip it under the door. And it probably, you know, we all, we do our best as parents, right? We, we don't always get it right, but we do our best. And it probably wasn't it didn't teach me of how to actually do this work. I had to figure that out myself, but it showed me that it was possible. And that forgiveness piece, like, yes, it's really important for us to like ask the people that we've hurt for forgiveness, but so many people forget to then redirect it to ourselves. And so we're so busy, like, you know, nailing ourselves to the cross for, you know, all of our sins, instead of saying like, I need to extend some of that grace to myself and be like, I'm human. I'm going to make mistakes. It doesn't make me a bad person. Right. Yep. Yeah. And that's another thing. That's another kind of layer as we're talking about all of this perfection that's, you know, falling to the side and all of this, you know, crutches that we had that are falling away. Like also this grace of like realizing our humanness through the process is Mm -hmm. really changing things right now. Well, I think we, we lost control this year. Coronavirus uh, took even the most type A organized soccer mom with her charts and her graphs of what everybody's activities were for the week. Even she had no control over what was going on. 
in the world. And it wasn't just like one house or even one country going through this. This was the entire friggin' world. And so when we start to recognize that we don't have any control, we can make a plan, but we better be friggin' flexible. Um, it starts to change how we show up in the world. Like one of my big burdens is I have this, this narrative that I'm working with my therapist to untangle around my productivity and my worth. So if I'm not always mm -hmm. busy, I start I, to feel really crappy yeah. about myself. And coronavirus kind of had to, like that's where I was able to start having this conversation because I couldn't be as busy as I was because people weren't as busy as they were, except for like Amazon and the grocery stores. Most people, like it's, everything is slower. Everything is different. Everything is more intimate. And so I had to say, okay, great. What does this mean for me? Like, can I still be a worthy person if I'm not go, 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 go from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to bed? And these are the opportunities that we get to have. But first we have to accept the fact that we have no control, even if that's painful. <laughs> and that's what allows us to create something new. Yeah, definitely. And we were talking about that, though, a little bit before we, we started our podcast and, and kind of letting go and, and that divine plan <laughs> that mm -hmm. can sometimes throw everything off. So it's just brought this reprioritization of our time and the way that we think things and and even calming our anger in some circumstances in this saying, you know what, I would rather either cut this one off because, you know, with the Black Lives Matter movement and and what's been going on a lot of in a lot of the conversations, you know, there's just a point where you have to say, you know what, I can't have you in my life because mm -hmm. we we were incompatible. Like, or you hurt me so much that I can't continue this relationship and honor myself and respect myself as well. But it's also kind of shifted how we spend our time. Mm -hmm. And that slowing down and that reprioritization has, has for me brought expansion into my life. Like it hasn't made it smaller. Yeah, so here's the interesting thing. So people who, and I include myself in this, people who've struggled with mental illness already learned this lesson before coronavirus. <laughs> So I had a breakdown in 2013, 14. I had almost a year of debilitating anxiety where I didn't leave the house. Like it, like I couldn't get out of bed most days. It was really bad. And in that time, I found out who my real friends were. I found out just how little energy I had to give. And so when you only have so much energy, you wanna make sure you're investing it wisely. And, um, and the time that I could spend actually out of bed was very minimal. So I got really choosy about who I surrounded myself with. And so those lessons definitely apply to people right now, except now it's everybody who didn't have mental illness is experiencing it, where they're like, okay, hold on. I don't have as much energy to give. I have a lot less time. I'm not going out <laughs> at all. So what do I want to do? And we are actively and consciously creating our realities right now, which people aren't seeing. They're just like, oh, my rights are being stripped away. Oh, I have to wear a mask. They're not recognizing the opportunity. They're getting to consciously create the life they're living right now. Um, and in a way that honors their time and their energy. And it's it's a really beautiful opportunity if people are willing to take it. <laughs> totally. Well, when you look at, at places, I know that New Zealand is also much smaller and less condensed population than a lot of the United States or European cities or, or this or that. 
but they made some really, really hard choices mm -hmm. initially. And so it kind of, and, and you know, the, the, you, the Asian countries as well, where they're much more community oriented, they were just like, okay, whatever, I wear a mask. Done. End of, you know, and- And, and look at them now. Yeah. Like they're doing so much better than, than the Western world because they've got, because they just were able to make some big decisions to uh, respect the fact that they had to do this to save the most vulnerable parts of their population. And then ta-da, it's over. When I hear people complaining right now about how Christmas is canceled, I'm like, if you had just freaking stayed home in March, this would be done. <laughs> like, right. I don't mean to be so cynical and bitchy about it, but honestly, like I get really, I mean, we've been, my husband is, um, he's got asthma. So he's really nervous about coronavirus. Oh, and we've been, we've been in lockdown since like the middle of February because he was doing it proactively before it was mandated. Right. And um, so, you know, here we are since February where I've barely left the house. I go out for like doctor's appointments and like, that's pretty much it. And I'm like, and you want to talk to me about Christmas being canceled? Nah, man. Like, you were going to the beach. You were going and having vacations everywhere. You are going out without masks until that became a thing that wasn't an option. Like, you know, we have to we have to put our people at the forefront. We have to put our own needs aside for our most vulnerable people. If that's the world we want to live in. If we want to live in a world where there's nobody with any illnesses, no seniors with all of their wisdom and the people that we love, um, then yeah, sure, let's just like coronavirus like white people out. But that's not the world I want to live in. I want to live in the world where we can keep as many of us together as we can. And right. that requires us to be a little bit selfless. And a lot of people aren't willing to do that. Right. You well, can tell this makes me angry. <laughs> Oh gosh. Yeah, I, I am 100% with you. And I don't understand like the anger that some people have towards other people protecting themselves by wearing a mask. You know, there have been people who have beat people, spit in their faces, pulled their masks down and coughed at them and stuff like that. And like that kind of anger confuses me. Like, what's the problem with me taking care of myself and my family in a way that I feel is um necessary so this is a, a much less extreme example when i gave up eating meat my family who are very carniv carnivorous were very worried and then the worry switched to them thinking that i was judging them for eating meat and that i was somehow superior because i didn't and really it was like i don't care what you eat i'm just not putting it in my own mouth that's the end of the deal and i think that's kind of what's happening with this mask debate and with the the intensity and the judgment on both sides. I think there is this thing where it's like, we like, you know, if the people who are anti-maskers think that we think like not we people who are wearing masks that they are like, feel that they're superior and whatever. And so there's this, this real childish playground acting out that's happening because they're feeling like, you know, like that someone is saying that they're better than them. But I mean, even if they were, you can choose to go on your merry way, but I think part of the problem is they've got this judgment, this that which is triggering something within them that says, I'm not worthy. Look, this person with a mask is telling me I'm not worthy. And then you have the fact that they've been cooped up and they feel that their rights have been taken away. So there's that pressure cooker thing that is really making all the reactions completely disproportionate. So I think that's what's going on. Right.
Yeah, and for me too, I mean, the mask for me symbolizes freedom. It signifies that I can go on and do my thing and wear my mask and go to the grocery store or do whatever, as long as I'm not wearing like the, you know, the person. Yeah, you know, and, and it's just being a little bit cautious, but no need to get mad about, I guess, <laughs> for me, it's just really, you know. I understand, and there's this fear too. There's this clutching, in my opinion, of onto this old way of doing things. And a mask represents the loss. And you know how you were saying earlier that anger sometimes. The best quote I've ever seen regarding anger is, "Anger is sad's bodyguard." Ooh. I like that too. I haven't heard that before, but yes. Yeah. I actually wrote about all the different things in my book. That's like, you're not angry. You're, you're sad. You're feeling vulnerable. You're disappointed. You're whatever, because it is a much more convenient mask. Um, and I think this is actually probably why men, it's permissible for them to be angry because it's not permissible for them to be sad and vulnerable and scared and lonely and disappointed and whatever. Um, but it is, hard to be in those places and because of the fire that comes with anger even though we fear its power even though we know it can be destructive and the unpredictability that comes with it all of that is a greater risk than saying my feelings are hurt so it's very often sure. that we'll, we'll revert to anger because it's as uncomfortable as it is it's the more comfortable emotion of the two which is funny because yeah. anger is so uncomfortable and sure. anger is so, but yeah, it is really like that. It's it's much easier to yell at somebody or be mad at somebody or just be offended than it is to say, I'm really hurt because you're not honoring my time. Or I'm really hurt because, you know, whatever reason. The so, one that I've been saying with my husband lately, um, because again, I, I've been getting my beat back where I can stop before I go off the handle. I'll take a pause and I'll take a breath and I'll say, I would like you to think about how you would feel if I said that to you. Because it is not even expressing my feelings at that point. I want to tap into the empathy part first. Because I'm like, if you can get how I might be feeling, then we can start to have a conversation. And he will usually say, I need to be with that for a second. And then he'll go quiet. And then he'll sit down and be like, I'm really sorry. That was out of line. And it ends up being like a total non-event because we're dealing with it as it happens. But if I had buried that down and buried that down and all the little times that like, uh, you know, these little things would add up, then it becomes a volcano that's like, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> do you remember when you right. did this and this and this? And we start to laundry list, you know, all of our all of our complaints that if we had just dealt with them at the time, it would be like a five minute affair. It wouldn't be like a week of not talking to each other. And I love the fact that you bring that up because the more fuel that you push down the more times you just stuff that anger down instead of saying, hey, that was kind of out of line. Can you like think about it the next time? And it's, it's like taking care of in our house, except we're doing yeah. it to ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And it happens so often to empathic people, to sensitive people where, and then it's just like, woo, she flew off the handle or those divorces that come out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. You know, where the person has, you know, just totally pushed everything down and repressed everything for such a long time that they're just like, you know what? I'm not going to even, I don't have any fight left in me. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, um... With your, 
no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. You go ahead. Oh, I remember it's, what I was um, going to say anymore. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, just a pressure cooker and, and how sometimes people aren't even being heard when they're expressing their, their discomfort or their unhappiness or their lack of whatever. And then sometimes it's also met with anger mm -hmm. as well. I think that's, um, we need to, we, we need to teach people how to treat us and what the rules of engagement are. We almost need to agree in a relationship. I'm going to do this. You're going to do that. This is how we engage, which doesn't mean you can't change it. Um, but that requires us to have done that work before we end up in our partnerships where we know what our needs are, where we know what our boundaries are. Empaths are the freaking worst for boundaries. They don't know that they've been crossed until they've been, until they're angry because they've been crossed. But when we can do that pre-work, like I started, you know, I, I joke that I was manifesting my husband from when I was like 28 to 32 when we met. And um, and I, I literally spent four years of deep inner work on myself, of forgiving myself, of recognizing my patterns, of um, looking at my bad relationships and forgiving myself for making those choices. Like I readied myself. So when I showed up and said like, so here's the deal. <laughs> These are the things like I was like, he was in England. I was like, I'm not going to live in England. I need to be in Vancouver. Um, I expect a lot of time. I'm really intense. I have all these emotions and I'm not going to dial them down. And like, I mean, we had a very short courtship. Like we met in person in September. Uh, we were engaged November 2nd and we were married in March. Like it was like, doo, 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 doo. and oh. you know, we've been together for eight years. So it can happen, but because I had done four intense years of these are my needs, this is, and I just showed up at the table with my cards out and I was like, this is the situation. <laughs> this is the game we're playing. And he was willing to meet me there. But um, not everybody does that, especially when you find your partners young. Like we haven't been taught to do that, to just get really raw and real about what we feel. And then of course, when we do it, when we're young, people think that we're too needy or we're too intense. It's not needy, it's honest. It's clear. It's defined of what our needs are. And it weeds out the people who are not willing to meet us there. It doesn't make them wrong. It just makes us the wrong fit for us. Right, right. And I also find, too, that, you know, with my my own relationship and, and I kind of did a lot of self-work, too, before I met my husband. And but throughout our relationship, there have been, you know, times challenging times where we've had to say this is my boundary mm -hmm. I didn't realize it was a boundary before and I've allowed you to cross that boundary a hundred thousand times but as of today I'm drawing the line you this know and an example of the chess and checkers you yeah exactly chess and you said hey today we're playing checkers and this is how it's going to be from now on right and like how beautiful to honor yourself and to be met in a sense in in a way that can honor that Right. And the whole thing is, is if he, exactly the way you said it initially, like if he was like, nope, not interested in playing checkers, not interested in playing anything but chess, it would have been like, okay, then that's the end of it. Yeah. But it was just like, okay, let's learn a new game. Mm -hmm. And we don't, we're not taught to figure out what our deal breakers are. That's way more important than algebra, in my opinion, for most people, unless you're going to be an architect or yeah, whatever. Totally. You know, we really, um, the, the sort of like the soft sciences are something that are really should be integrated in us much younger. 
And I think that um, society has kind of left it up to the parents, but the parents haven't learned it either. So it's um, everyone is just trying to do their best. But I mean, if we had had those skills right from the beginning, if and I, and I think that's starting to shift now. Like I know that I've seen like children being raised where like you don't have to force your kid to hug you know, anti so-and-so, if the kid says no, and the parents say, well, no, that's okay. You're allowed to have that bodily autonomy. The more we can start to train people like that, the more they, they learn that it's okay to honor their needs right from the get-go. Right. And there is a big shift. And I feel like every step forward, uh, sorry, Hope said people say they want honesty, but then get mad when it arrives. Mm -hmm. You still deliver it more for yourself than for them. That's what Hope said. Um, yeah. And yeah. I mean, sometimes that's where we have to be, like, because that honoring of self is so important. And if it can make the changes that we need in the relationship, then that's fantastic. If it means that it shines the light that actually this isn't the relationship that works anymore, it's less fantastic, but necessary. Um, but the honoring of the self and doing it anyway, that is so important. When I started Sacred Anger, um, I went to go and read a chapter to my husband and he was like, I don't want anything to do with this book. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to read it. I don't want anything. Because he was someone who was not dealing with his own stuff at all at the time. And I cried and I cried. And I had this moment of this book is bigger than our marriage. And it's going to happen. And I don't know if it means I'm going to get divorced, but I have to write this book. And I took the risk. And this year, we're now in the place where he's doing my editing. He's fist bumping the air, reading the chapters. Like he's so excited about the journey because he did the work to get there. And it still blows my mind that he was in a place where he was like, I don't even want to hear you read from this book, like nothing. And it was such an important oh, wow. part of me. And I did know that there was a chance that like it, 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 the book was happening. And if I couldn't talk about it and it was going to be a necessary part of my work, then it was probably going to end my marriage. And I did it anyway. We have to show up for ourselves in that way. When we know something is essential, when we know that it is um, non-negotiable, then we need to claim that and live it because anything else is going to build up that resentment that we talked about before. Right. Exactly. So your book is available for pre-sale now. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, if you head over to sacredangerbook.com, um, it gives you an idea of what the book is about. It gives you what all the pre-order bonuses are. So you go in, you can buy it from whoever. Um, Amazon is the easiest one, but <clears throat> it's got a few other international retailers. And then you just go in, you put your receipt number, and then you start to get access to the goodies. So there's um, a folder full of resources that are still developing between now and March. And then we're hosting a really, really beautiful uh, full moon ceremony in March that is all about releasing anger in anything else that is in the way of your joy. Wonderful, wonderful. I love that. So um, Serena, thanks again for coming on today and sharing all of your wisdom with us. And I will put all of your contact information and the website in the show notes if they're watching the replay in the Facebook group, and then also on the page on Spiritual Business Spotlight. So Wonderful. thank you for inviting me. This was so much fun. It was fun. So thank you again for showing up. I really, really appreciate it. And I'm glad that we got to connect finally after all of these years of kind of being in the same orbit. So We actually let our circles like inter intertwine a little bit. It was a, <laughs> it was a wonderful way it all came together. Yes, definitely. Definitely. All right. Well, I am going to end the broadcast. And if again, if you wanted to get a hold of Serena's book, it's on sacredanger.com. Is that correct? Sacredangerbook.com. Oh, 
Okay, thank you. Someone already thank bought you. Sacred Anger. I had to make do. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's how it goes sometimes. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. Thanks, Thanks so much. much. And thank you, everybody, for joining us. And this is Sue from Spiritual Business Spotlight. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.